well, I'm really happy and honored to be sharing with you this morning. Uh, my name's Ernie. Uh, my wife and I, Andrea, and our two boys, we've been members of Mercy Hill Church for some time. Um, and one of the things I love about Mercy Hill Church is kind of our biblical uh, model of leadership, and that is the plurality of elders. Uh, and I've also had the privilege, although not on staff, to be able to serve as an elder uh, for a number of years here at Mercy Hill Church. Um, so it's really just an honor and privilege to be here this morning to share with y'all. Um, I also have the opportunity to lead uh, one of our community groups here in the Bayview neighborhood area in a neighborhood called Fernwood um, that we very much love to be part of and, and the folks there that join us. Um, it's just such a blessing to have uh, those uh, people in our lives. So this morning, um, I have the opportunity to continue in our series, Battleground. Uh, we've been in this, I think this is our third week that we are in this series. Pastor Phil kicked us off the first week, and Jesse last week uh, continued the series. So uh, as I begin to uh, kind of walk through some of the passages and unpack some of the things this morning, uh, let's, I invite you to pray with me this morning as we get started. Father, I pray this morning that your word continue to speak truth into our lives that it continue to reshape our thinking, reshape and expand our limited view, our limited view of our mind's eye that often is, oftentimes is muddled by our own thinking or the thinking of this world. Renew our hearts, open our minds to the battles we face and the battle of those around us that they face. In your name, Jesus, we pray, amen. So as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Pastor Phil laid out passages teaching us about how as Christians we have an enemy. In Ephesians 6.12 it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And during his teaching, Pastor Phil exhorted us to be more vigilant, not from a place of fear, but from a place of awareness. Because the enemy seeks to devour, as we see in 1 Peter, which says, be, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, y'all know, like, we have uh, one of the things that I like to do here is just kind of give a little bit more context. And um, y'all know what uh, uh, is coming around the corner, right? What, what holiday? What, what, give me a date. What date did uh, the Declaration of Independence cook? Fourth. All right. Awesome. Now, I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know this. But Fourth of July is when the Declaration of Independence was actually signed. But the Declaration was actually done on July 2nd which was today, 247-some years ago. One of the things that we do oftentimes when we hear of ki like our kids in schools, or even us, if we can recall, in schools, is oftentimes we're taught about uh, certain historical battles and some of the context that happens in these battles uh, throughout our history. And so one of the things I'd like to do this morning is just kind of give you and highlight some of the battles that when we talk about spiritual warfare, let's actually give a little bit of context and some, uh, uh, some examples of what's been done. So I'll highlight five for us today as we dive in. The first is the fall of Lucifer 
Uh, I won't go in through all of these passages, so if you're a note taker, you can uh, just write these passages down. Uh, But Lucifer began the rebellion, really as we know it, against a sovereign God. Um, And these events are described in Isaiah and Ezekiel. The second piece here, the second key battle uh, that we see is after the creation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Satan tempted them to disobey, leading them to the introduction of sin. And really, this is a pivotal moment of spiritual warfare in Genesis 3 that we see. At this time, it's important to note that as Lucifer in that first, what we see in Ezekiel and Isaiah, described as the beginning of a rebellion against a sovereign God, what is very important to understand in Genesis 3 is that humanity joins this rebellion against God. But one thing to understand here is that God remains sovereign. Oftentimes when we think about in, in, in battles or, or, or you know, uh, enemies, we think of two opposing uh, uh, people or forces that have almost equal power. And it's a matter of who is going to win, right? That's not the case here. God continues to remain sovereign. And we'll dive into that in a little bit. So that's the second one. The third one is... Fast-forwarding to Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, uh, Jesus marked a significant phase in spiritual warfare. He engaged in direct confrontations with demonic forces, casting out demons and demonstrating God's authority. And we see this in Matthew 8 and Mark 5. And we have all heard the the, uh, Great Commission. Oftentimes, missionaries will, will, or anytime a topic of missions is is, um, preached on or taught on, like we see and hear the Great Commission oftentimes referred to. And do we recall how the Great Commission actually starts, how Jesus begins this in Matthew 28? He starts with this statement, All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Again, emphasizing that God's sovereignty here. These aren't two equal forces in opposition of each other. God remains sovereign, all-powerful. So that's the third. The fourth is the resurrection and the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus really dealt one of the biggest and decisive blows to the powers of darkness. I would say this really culminates in what I'm now going to call or refer to as the rebellion against the rebellion. What disempowered us as humanity who surrendered to Christ through his death, through his resurrection, to have a victory in our battle with the enemy. And we see this actually emphasized in Colossians chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 2. It reads as follows. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It says in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. This leads us to the fifth key battle that we can say within Scripture. And that is what we know as Pentecost Sunday, or Pentecost, I'm sorry, in Acts 2. Following Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit poured on to believers, and the Holy Spirit empowered believers 
to engage in spiritual warfare, equipping us with spiritual gifts and enabling us to resist the enemy. And this is what we went through in the past couple of weeks through Ephesians chapter 6. So oftentimes when we look back at these different battles that we study, even within the U.S. history or any other country's history, oftentimes we not only understand some of the facts of you know, who, what, when, etc., but we also get into why. So that's something I just want to highlight for us too. What is at stake? When we talk about spiritual warfare, when we take all of this to account, what is the enemy ultimately fighting for? Our souls. He's fighting for us to not believe the salvation that we have in Christ, which is really highlighted in Colossians chapter 1, which says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we were once part of the rebellion against a sovereign God. But through his mercy, through his grace, he's actually allowed us a pathway to join the rebellion against the rebellion. And for that, we have the armor. For that, we have the armor described in Ephesians 6. And last week, Pastor Jesse walked us through this, and he really helped frame up the centrality of the armor, pointing it all back to Jesus. So let's go back through these central passages. Ephesians chapter 6 Verses 13 and on say, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all that, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes to your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with, you can, uh, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, if you recall, and if you were here last week, Pastor Jesse unpacked this and brought us back to what all these pointed to. When he talked about the belt of truth, John 14 talked about Jesus saying, I am the truth. So we see the belt of truth pointing back to Jesus. We see that when it talks about the, the breastplate of righteousness, we see in 1 Corinthians uh, when Christ says, He is our righteousness, our holiness and redemption. When we talks about in verse 16 about the shield of faith, we see in Galatians 2 that um, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is the faith that we have in Jesus. By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we talk about the helmet of salvation, Acts 4 talks about how there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So all of this to summarize that the, the particular armor and the pieces and components of this armor point back to Christ, point back to Jesus. To summarize, we're in a battle. We're in a battle against an accuser, Satan whose number one goal is to accuse us and sell us of the biggest lie ever told to humankind. Remember, Jesse was speaking about this. He mentioned the very definition of Satan is that of the accuser. And to deceive us, he wants us to forget what we have. He wants us to forget the forgiveness that we have that Colossians speaks to. He wants us to fail. He wants us to stumble. 
So what does spiritual warfare look like? If we were to close our eyes, if we were to conjure up some images, I bet most of us would probably think a very similar thing. When we talk about spiritual warfare, when spiritual warfare has been talked about, for some we may conjure up some images similar to scenes straight out of a movie. Perhaps maybe for us, some of us, it might be something like the exorcism. Or for others, it might be that we think of this force that is at battle above us, and it looks a little bit like this epic battle from the Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is running down the mountain with his powerful light destroying the enemy, and it looks like something straight out of Revelations. Of course, I'm being a little facetious in my descriptions of spiritual warfare. The point here is we often visualize the spiritual warfare between us and this tangible demonic presence Something we can see, something we can feel with our bones. And this is indeed true. I'm not dismissing this. I'm not trying to underplay it. We can see this through all of Jesus' ministry and even until this very day. Pastor Jesse shared some stories last week of this very real thing. It is real. For as much as we want to deny it or ignore it because of the uneasiness that it brings to us, it's real. This is an actual force. I've experienced it. I've been in services where this, is, this has come to fruition, where, where a demonic presence overtakes a person's life. And it is not fun. It is weird. It is awkward. It is scary. All of the above. But today, I want us to hone in on a very common and very different tactic that the enemy uses often. And that is the attack of our thoughts, the attack on our mind. You know, a little physiological fun fact for us here today. Do you know that your brain, the actual brain, is about, makes up about 2% of your body's weight, but uses up about 20% of your body's energy? Isn't that amazing? From a psychological standpoint, one of the things that I've learned about my brain and humanity is that our brains are very good at something called self-deception. We often fool ourselves believing things that aren't true, such as our own biases or strengths and weaknesses. I'm going to give you an example, okay? I'm going to ask you a question. The answer is going to be a number, okay? So as soon as I ask you the question, just shout out the number to me. Sound like a plan? All right, this is interactive. All right, good? All right. Sunday school level question. All right, so it shouldn't be too hard. How many of, how many of each animal was Moses instructed to bring onto the ark? I heard lots of twos before I heard zeros in Noah. So the question was, how many of each animal was Moses instructed to bring onto the ark? Zero. It was Noah. But see what happens in our brains. We already, uh, what Daniel Kuhneman in a book called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow calls System 1 and System 2 thinking. System 1 becomes super lazy. And that is a lot of what manages our day-to-day. It looks for patterns. As you walked into this building, it was looking for patterns and it was dismissing everything that was out of place because it was like most of this looks normal. 
This is a normal time. We're not having service at six o'clock on a Sunday evening. Like all these things, our brain is automatically going into this autopilot. So when I started to kind of plant a seed that the answer was going to be a number, that it was a Sunday school level question, our brain's already starting to ignore key parts of the question. This happens often in our day to day. Now imagine how susceptible our thinking is to the accusations and deceptions that the enemy brings about when it comes to our salvation or the gospel as a whole. Just imagine when asked, who do you spend the most time with? Our answers will be ourselves. Like my, in my brain, ruminating and thinking and whatever have you, That's where I'm at. This is a much more subtle tactic. It's not as overt, but it's often a lot more cunning. It's a lot more shifty. It's a lot more sly of the enemy. And again, the attack is against the truth that we just saw in Colossians 1, which says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have... Redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So as we think about spiritual warfare, I don't want us to just focus on the casting out of the demons, but also understand that we're in a rebellion against the rebellion for our salvation, for our eternity. The emphasis that Jesus makes in a passage we're going to look at here in a second always amazes me and astonishes me. And it's emphasizing and reiterating what we just discussed. This is a passage we're going to read here where Jesus sends out his 12 disciples to go share the gospel, share the good news. And then he sends out an additional 72. And when he tells the 72, he's like, listen, where you're going, you're not going to be necessarily welcomed or received. In fact, he describes it as, I'm sending you all out like lambs in the midst of wolves. It's going to get crazy. So then we pick up the passage in Luke 10 where it says, The 72 returned with joy. They returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions all over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Cool. Awesome. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So even when it's about slaying demons, what is Jesus telling the 72 to be rejoiceful about? It's not the demons that left. It's that they have their names written in heaven. Now, this might come as a shock to you, but I was not very athletic in my youth. Um, And I always think about this as like, I recently got into coaching my youngest kid's soccer. 
And it's almost like if I were to go to this kid that maybe scored the goal-winning kick coming down to seconds, and we win the championship for the season, and I go up to the kid, and I'm like, yeah, you can do that, but just be happy that you're on the team. Like, what? Like, how would that come across? You imagine, like, these 72 coming to Jesus and like, whoa, did you just see what happened? And Jesus is like, yeah, like lightning. Satan was boom. He left. But then Jesus says, but, but rejoice. Not in that, but in that your names are written in heaven. So as we shift our focus today to another passage, I want us to keep this in mind. As we think about the spiritual warfare and some of the context I've laid out about the history within Scripture, about what's at stake, our very soul, I want us to keep this particular passage in mind too. Let's jump over to 2 Corinthians. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Let me give you some context in this particular passage. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And in particular, the, 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 the critics that were rising in Corinth against the church, even within the church. So he asserts that he is strong. He is building, his strength is for good. Paul writes this passage to the church while they're facing a number of challenges, including false teachers, sexual immorality and divisions, and a number of other things. He was trying to address these challenges to strengthen the church and understand what they were up against. So there are two ways in which we can interpret this particular passage. So I'd like to share those two along with a bit of a testimony. First, when we look at verse 5, actually, let me back up there for a second. When we look at verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We often equate these strongholds to these spiritual realms, but oftentimes these strongholds are actually our way of thinking. So in verse 5, we jump in and says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The first way to interpret this is Paul is talking about not his thinking. He's not talking about his opinion. He's not talking about how he's approaching or thinking the things, but rather the approach of whom? Of others. The specific battle here is for the minds of people who are captive to lies that are exalted in opposition of Scripture. You see, unbelievers have built fortresses in their minds to protect themselves from the truth of God. These fortresses can take many forms. In philosophy, psychology, world religions, cults, apostate forms of Christianity, or even evolutionary naturalism. In the same way that Paul was captive to the lies before he came to know Christ, unbelievers are captive to lies as well. 
They may not realize it. They may, not, they may be hiding from the true knowledge of God. But these fortresses will not stand forever. How much more relevant is it when Paul says in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So the first interpretation that we can take from this particular passage is one that if, as Christians, bringing captive the strongholds and the thinking of unbelievers. That's how we can refer to this. So let me share a bit about my story. A few years back, I was in this training program in the workplace. Um, and it was really around emphasizing the topic of racism. The training was actually really good, thoughtful, etc. You know, some good things were brought up. And I made a comment afterwards in the small group discussion we had when we broke out into group discussions with the team. One of my colleagues chatted me and, at the time, and he chatted me and he's like, Hey, Ernie, um, I'd like to unpack a bit more of what you said. Could we meet? Cool. Yeah, let's do it. So we met after work, chatted. And the bottom line of what I conveyed to him was this. Any system or policy or philosophy that humans put in place will always be limited when the gospel of Christ is absent. You cannot hold on to the idea or a concept absent of the gospel and believe that it will change hearts and minds. And this is a subtle tactic that the enemy uses with unbelievers. I am justified enough. I am fair enough. I treat everyone the same. But when absent of Christ, it holds nothing. It doesn't last forever. It falls short. And what I told this person, this colleague, and I told him, I'm like, listen, I, the lens in which I see this is as Roman says, there is no one just, not even one. And that's the lens in which we all fall short. And so we strive to apply Christ's teachings to this. To this very day, almost without fail, some hot topic comes up in the news, whatever controversy there is, and he's texting me. And we still connect on a regular basis. He's like, Ernie, what, what, what did the gospel say about this? And this is a small example of what Paul is talking about. There are extreme examples of this. A lot of us have come across this. But these are the small ways in which we, when we are in these situations, have to be aware and vigilant about the stronghold that is very limited, even when it has good intention. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the enemy not only speaks what is false, he turns a little bit of what is true to say, this is, this is true enough. This is far enough. But doesn't 
show the beauty of the cross and what it does and brings to our lives. Now, that's one interpretation of what we can see in this particular passage of how Paul is changing the minds and bringing them captive of unbelievers and the falsehoods that arise. But there's another side to this coin, and it can be applied to us as believers. As believers, it may be that we fall actually on the wrong side of this text. It may be that it is our argument, it may be that it is our lofty opinion that the enemy puts in our ear that goes against the knowledge of God, but we're blinded to it. About 20 or so years ago, we're, uh, the church I was a part of that I grew up in, we did a volunteer event with another church with young adults, uh, and it was fantastic. We had a really good time, and we were able to share the gospel with kids and just, just show up for, for people. And afterwards, uh, one, our, one of the guys that, from this other church, this other group, um, he was like, hey, would you mind if you guys want to come over and, and we'll have something to eat? And just hang out in fellowship. And we're like, yeah, let's do it. It's fantastic. So we show up. And um, after a little bit, uh, he offers me a beer. Now, understand something. Up until this point, I had a pretty religious upbringing. I was very similar in that camp of how Pastor Tommy always jokes. and makes the joke of, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, or go out with girls who do. Like, I was kind of in that camp. And it was very much focused on outwardly deeds. How I appeared to others was all I was focused and worried about. It never really was about a transformation of heart and mind. So in this particular situation, I was ready. Get all self-righteous. But what threw me for a loop was how this guy responded. He responded with humility, with scripture and passage, and walked away and said, Ernie, I'm going to walk away from this, reevaluating this topic and praying about it. I was ready for us to just be in, 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 divided. I was ready for us to just like, you know what? We agree to disagree. Let's go our own way. But what I saw in his reaction was the gospel of Christ reacting to a self-righteous mind. The story I share is small. This story I share is very small compared to what happens. Research in the last year has shown that since the mid-80s, over 20,000 or so church splits have happened. Y'all, 20,000 church splits. Like, do they not realize that we're all going to be in heaven together? Like, what, what's going on? There is a lie that gets whispered in the ears of believers that makes us think we have the moral high, high ground, that we have the self-righteousness, but yet Romans says there is no one righteous, not even one. Imagine when we approach the topics, how petty they are or how divisive they are or how controversial they are through the lens of the gospel, what Christ 
Imagine what Christ can do. Imagine the strongholds that can fall. 2 Corinthians 11.14-15 to 15 say, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will, will correspond to their deeds. Church, careful. Careful that in the moments that we step into conversations in which we think we are right and very well could be, that we approach it with humility and do not believe the lie whispered that may lead to division. You hear me? That is critical. Critical to the growth of the gospel. More so now than ever in the culture that we live in. It's amazing how often I find myself in conversations and right away, I know I have like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, dude, you're not even, you're not even open to the conversation. This person doesn't believe in Christ. Like, let's, let's at least share that. There's a great book that actually uh, someone in um, the community group that I'm a part of brought up last Sunday, and I was kind of sharing a little bit of where we're going with this this week. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's like the, the, the screw, tape, screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. I'm like, eight. Exactly. Um, so someone from, from my community group shared that, uh, and, and I wanted to share just a quick quote from there. We want the church to be small, not only so that fewer men may know the enemy, but also that those who may acquire the uneasy intensity and the defensive self-righteousness of a secret society or a clique. This is a book written by C.S. Lewis, if you're not familiar with it, where a senior demon named Screwtape is writing letters to his junior nephew demon, and he's telling him like, how best to approach you know, uh, uh, attacking you know, believers and, and, and non-believers, etc. And it's just really sly and slick and kind of how it comes across. As believers, the challenge I have for us today is are we submitting our thoughts to Christ? Are we submitting our opinion or thought regularly and often? Are we questioning ourselves through the lens of the gospel and what it represents and holds near? Just look at passages of how Jesus actually treats sinners versus the church, and I think you'll be surprised. Are we praying for discernment of the things that are whispered in our ear, despite if they sound okay. Romans 15, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. All we think, all we believe should be submitted to Christ and what he's already accomplished. Now, I've gave you those two stories of battles that I feel like I've been able to overcome, but I'd be lying to you today. I'd be lying to you today if I didn't say I didn't face battles today. 
In fact, one of the battles as of late, and I feel like this is something I'm sensing in folks that we talk to, has been a battle and a struggle. So my wife has been struggling for some time with physical ailments. Um, and, and, and let me tell you, like, we come to it. We believe in a God of healing. We understand, and, 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 and actually we can't even understand the miraculous healing that God can offer oftentimes. Our brains are limited to that. But that's the belief we have. But one thing that often we overlook in these situations is that in these difficult seasons, in these difficult periods of time in our lives, when there may be some physical ailment that we have and that we're going through, we overlook that that is an opportunity in which the enemy whispers in our ear lies that rob us from the true joy and peace that we have in God. So we need to speak the truth to ourselves, even amongst believers. We need to be reminded of that we're loved and that Jesus doesn't love you less or more, regardless of how you are, regardless of where you're at physically. I am pulling this quote from an author who is specifically targeting moms. So if you're a mom here today, this is for you. But our physical state need not be the gauge or the steering wheel for our spiritual state. Let me read that again. She says, but our physical state need not be the gauge or the steering wheel for our spiritual state. Because Satan would love nothing more than to keep us in confusion about what ails us. As believers, we go throughout life and there are lies whispered in our ears. The battle for our minds is a real battle. The enemy wants to control our thoughts. And will do so by any means necessary, but we can resist him. The spiritual warfare that was shown to us is we can resist the enemy daily. 1 Peter 5.9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Know that you're not alone. That sounds like a cliche, but you're not. It says so right here. Reach out. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil. We have the ability to resist the enemy daily. We have the ability, according to Ephesians, to also refuse the enemy and give no opportunity to the devil, says Ephesians 4, 27. Ephesians 16, 11 says, as we read, we can stand against the devil and we can only do so by putting on the whole armor of God. And who is that? Jesus, it's Christ. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here in a second. And in a moment, we're going to have uh, our prayer partners also join us here in a little while after a song or two. And I want y'all just to know that if you are here today and you hold some lofty opinion Submit it to God. If you are here today and you are struggling physically 
and there are lies being whispered in your ear, help us pray, allow us to pray for you. There is a full spectrum I just walked through of spiritual warfare that we have. So as we go forth from this place, we are called to share the gospel. We are called to demolish the strongholds and the fortresses that lies hold, uh, the lies that people uh, build up. The world offers all kinds of philosophies, all kinds of religions and ideologies, but without the gospel, know this, they do not stand. Our role as believers is to shine that light into that, as well as shine the light again amongst believers, to hold each other accountable, to challenge the thinking we have. The spiritual warfare that we are in. Let me, let me rephrase this. If you think you're not in spiritual warfare, do not kid yourself. If you believe that Christ has died for your sins and you've submitted your life to him and live in pursuit of eternal life as it's described in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they may know you, Christ, whom you have sent, then you are automatically in the front lines. The enemy will whisper lies to you. The enemy will shout lies to you. The enemy is attacking always because the biggest lie of mankind is that we don't deserve what Christ has to offer. Let's pray.